Welcome to GenCast, a sponsored podcast series brought to you by Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News. I'm your host, Jeff Bukaliskis. In my last conversation with Dr. John Burke, President, CEO, and co-founder of Applied Biomath, we discussed how the companies applying advanced mathematical and systems biology techniques at critical decision points in the drug discovery process. In particular, we touched upon what the process is for deciding what will be the first human dose and what's involved in filing the Investigational New Drug Application, or IND. Now, in this final episode of our three-part podcast series, John and I dive even deeper into the mechanistic modeling approach and how organizations can and are specifically applying it to their drug discovery and development workflows. Let's jump in and join the conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this new episode of GenCast. As always, I'm your host, Jeff Bogaliskas, the technical editor for Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News, which has been bringing you the latest news and insights on new tools and technologies within the life science industry for over 40 years. Once again, it's my great pleasure to be joined by the co-founder, president, and CEO of Applied Biomath, Dr. John Burke. Welcome back, John. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be back. So, John, in the previous podcasts, we discussed determining if developing a therapeutic is feasible and whether or not it could be best in class. And you also gave us a glimpse into what goes into predicting first in human dose and filing an IND. But if you don't mind, um, could we dig a little bit deeper into how modeling approaches can help? So, Really, the first question I have is there are lots of approaches and guidances to picking a first in human starting dose, such as Noel and Mabel. You know, how does the mechanistic modeling fit into these approaches? Starting with a, a very good question. I'll do my best to overview, you know, my viewpoint on it, uh, but it's going to be, you know, really just the surface. So when when you're making your your human dose predictions, right, there's clearly this is highly regulated by governments right um or or like uh the european union right it's it's uh we want to make sure that we're putting in safe and efficacious therapies into humans um but it's also a function of what is tolerable so for example um if if you have cancer and you're on your fifth therapy you know you can be a little risky you can take maybe a therapeutic that might give you uh, a terrible rash or other issues, right, to save your life, right? Whereas if you are in I and I, let's say an autoimmune disease, right? Let's say you have uh, psoriasis or MS or, you know, RA, these, 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 these can be tough. These can be nasty, but people aren't going to tolerate very bad side effects, right? Because it's, it's, it's just a different risk profile. So I, I say all that to summarize the next steps where, you know, a safe starting dose in humans is really driven by the pharmacology and the toxicology. So when I talk about that, I'm, I'm, I'm really going to give an overview of the NOAL um, and Mabel and, and talk about what that is at a high level. So I can now compare that to using mechanistic approaches. So that's really where I'm heading. So, you know, when, when you think about this, 
after the fact, there are certain knowns that you don't know before you go into the clinic. So we use modeling to predict them. And that's where NOAL and Mabel come in, into play. And one is the therapeutic range, right? These are the doses or dose frequency uh, where the therapeutic works. You know, below a certain dose, uh, it's just not going to work. You're not getting above uh, enough on board. And if you dose higher than that therapeutic range, at least from, a, from an efficacy point of view, there's no difference. Now, depending on the therapy, if you continue dosing higher and higher and higher, all of a sudden you're going to have unacceptable toxicity, right? Um, and along with that, we have um, the minimum uh, effective dose, right? That's the lowest dose uh, that, that, that's required that just gets me into that therapeutic range. And, and we don't know what these answers are to these uh, until we go into the clinic and typically after phase three when we have a large enough population to look at the statistics. But we have to think about this before we go into human. And this is where we think about the tox side. And the toxicology side or tox side is, um, is the no observable adverse effect level or which, which we all call no AL. And this is like that maximum dose where you start getting uh, that, that unacceptable toxicity, and it, it depends. Oftentimes, we'll determine that experimentally or empirically. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's an in vitro assay. You know, maybe it's looking at a, a, a CINO where you keep on dosing high enough and, you know, maybe their cytokines are released or, or maybe cells start to die or, you know, uh, maybe it's neutropenia or something like that. You know, if you dose up high enough or whether in, in vitro or in an animal study, you're like, this is just too high. Um, and then what we do is we convert that no AL from, you know, from, uh, from those experiments to a human dose equivalent. You know, maybe that maybe, you know, this is a function of, you know, body size or number of cells, but there's a way to, to, to convert that. But then just to be extra safe, usually you apply a safety factor, whether that's tenfold or 20-fold or whatever, because you, you, you got to be careful. You got to be safe. We don't want patients to die. So that, that's the talk side of the no AL. On the efficacy side, that's the minimum anticipated biological effect level, or MABEL, um, and that's like that that that, that really with, with with your preclinical experiments, what that minimum anticipated biological effect level is. It's not quite efficacy yet, but where you're starting to get a readout, like some kind of PD read or pharmacodynamics read, or things are starting to happen, and that maximum recommended starting dose in a lot of ways is a combination of that NOAL and Mabel. And, you know, heaven forbid, right, that tox that, that unacceptable toxicity or NOAL lies within that therapeutic range. Now you're going to have a horrible or non-existent therapeutic index. Um, and these are all the questions that, that, that we have to think about. Um, so now, when you think about using this for gene therapies uh, or cell therapies, we really have less knowledge about that unacceptable toxicity and therapeutic range, especially when you're thinking about translating from preclinical into clinical. So this is where mechanistic modeling, one would argue, would still use this Mabel and Noel approach, but now we're using mechanism in the mathematical predictions. So for example, if we know, if you're looking at efficacy 
Um, and instead of just looking at a concentration in an in vitro assay, we know now instead the model predicts we're starting to see efficacy in the in vitro assay, perhaps at 80% target occupancy or 90%, or if it's a gene therapy, how much are you changing protein synthesis that you expect efficacy? That enables us to now correlate or match that with what's going in an animal model, model if possible. Because here what happens are the, 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 the context changes, right? These, these parameters matter. Maybe the numbers of cells are different. Maybe the sites per cell are different. Maybe concentrations of cytokines or feedback loops or rates of change of protein synthesis. If you're using, let's say, an RNAi or gene therapy where you're perturbing protein synthesis, you can actually put those numbers in the model uh, to match the knowns and unknowns in your in vitro assays, in your preclinical efficacy models, in your preclinical uh, safety models, but maybe also use information in the public domain for known therapies that hit the same pathways. So now when I'm making our human dose predictions uh, from that Mabel or NAOL approach, we can now look at mechanism so now, you know, if the science is right and the math is right and the data is right and the hypotheses are right, right, this is just like any kind of hypothesis, we can now more systematically explain what's going on. And at times, compared to these other approaches without mechanism, sometimes you can justify a higher starting dose because species differences aren't just based on allometry, you know, or allometric scaling. It's not just a function of body size or this or that or the other thing. It really matters about the variability and uncertainty in the numbers of cells or the sites per cell or protein synthesis or feedback loops. So now you can say, you know what, I can justify that higher starting dose um, because it'll still be safe, it'll still be efficacious, and you also have a better idea of other factors that could be important where you don't want to overdose. So you can really, really make those better or more improved uh, uh, first in human dose predictions, and at times uh, even accelerate those clinical trials. Uh, does that answer the question? Yeah, very much so, John. And so my follow-up to that is, you know, then how do you guide customers through picking a first in human starting dose. So that, that's exactly what, 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 I, what I cover, but we can be much more specific. So say for instance, you're delivering a message like by, by some mechanism, whether a lipid nanoparticle or, or, or whatnot, what we would do then is you might have in your in vitro assay, how hard are you hitting the cells to show how you're changing protein synthesis, right? Um, and we make sure that the model can recapitulate that. And now you're going to do a similar uh, mathematical model or, or view of what's going on in the disease-relevant animal model. And what's important is by, by, by incorporating the dynamics of protein synthesis and degradation in that preclinical uh, experiments, including in vitro and in vivo, because context matters, we can now set the model to sh to to recapitulate or, or be set to the values of that differences in protein synthesis and or turnover rates or strengths of feedback loops. Um, so it's not just concentration based, like where you have these arbitrary thresholds, like an IC50 or EC90 or whatever is important. We can now really look at mechanism, maybe incorporate Sino data if that's important. So now we can really make those um, those human dose predictions. And what's critical here, because this is a, a, a mechanistic model, 
based on mechanism, based on things like affinities and synthesis rates and numbers of cells and sites per cell, we can now do backwards and forwards translation. So when you make your early human dose predictions using your preclinical data, um, you can now in those human dose predictions, there's uncertainty in your predictions that you can quantify on the PK and PD. Where those uncertainties occur um, and inflection points, how do you design, in humans, in your human dose predictions, so when you update the model, you can reduce that uncertainty. Well, sometimes you just can't, right? Sometimes you just, you will have that uncertainty. That's why we go into humans. But now, at least when we're predicting those human dose predictions and the dose levels that you'll need, whether the starting dose or you're looking at um, sad or, or mad dosing later on or looking at different indications, we can now select the doses and the, and the dose frequency and the time point selection such that once we get that data and put it back into the model, you can use the model parameter estimation to get more certainty for your next set of predictions. It really helps you making those decisions uh, before you go into the clinic. So again, thanks, John, uh, for that really detailed explanation. Appreciate that. Um, so next question I have is, let's say uh, the groups just filed their IND. What happens next? Right. So typically, um, you'll have a clinical pharmacologist on board who will perform somewhat rapid or intermediate analysis, whether it's NCA analysis or um, some relatively simple PKPD model. Um, to try to get an understanding on how dose, dose frequency, concentration, um, PK impacts PD. Uh, a challenge here is there's typically very few patients, um, very, very few. And we really don't have an idea about how uncertainty uh, uh, can impact what's going on or what particular part of, of the model of, of the drug or therapeutic mechanism of action is really impacting PD. So if you used or developed a mechanistic model, whether it's a QSP model or mechanistic PKPD model, to inform your IND, and this single model can recapitulate a lot of your preclinical data, maybe comparator and competitor clinical data or preclinical data, this gives you more confidence that the model predictions will be more correct because it's based on a lot of different data. It's more holistic. But now as data starts to come in in phase one, whether it's in healthy volunteers or patients or, or, or whatever, we can now in more real time start to do fitting and predictions of the data as it comes in. and now, before waiting till phase three, where you have enough patients, you know, to look at statistics, you can start to do like a mechanistic uh, virtual patient analysis to really think about in real, more close to real time, earlier in the clinic or earlier in clinical trials, to think about how uncertainty is impacting your your dosing from an efficacious point of view, but also from a safety point of view. Because when you do these fittings, you start to estimate distributions of model parameters. And then you can take a step back and start to do random sampling from these distributions and do a mechanistic population, if you will, of these predictions. So you're, you're, you're better able to make real-time decisions more, more quickly while you're in the clinic, maybe maybe before you start thinking about dose escalation, uh, the SAD and MAD data, 
um, and thinking about that recommended phase two uh, dose way, way more precisely and accurate than using uh, traditional approaches. So, John, then how does uncertainty and variability impact clinical trial design? Right. So th th that's a great question. So um, really, if you have a, a, a patient population, the patients don't all have the same number of T cells. They don't have the same number of B cells. They don't have the same number of, if you're going into a tumor, tumor cells, or if you're going into um, whatever your target, let's say you're, you're going into the eye or your kidney uh, with a targeted gene therapy and um, you're changing protein synthesis, right? How do you, no one has the exact same numbers of, of cells and cytokines and feedback loops and things like that. So where a lot of people, I think, are fearful of uncertainty and variability, mechanistic modeling embraces that. Um, and of course, th there are other techniques later on uh, that you could use too. But early on in, 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 the, in the modeling, you really can't understand, uh, early on in the clinic, there really aren't enough patients to think about um, statistics, if you will. You don't have enough of patients to do that. However, you can start to think about patient variability and uncertainty. So instead of just doing single simulations of that average patient, you can really kick the tires to say, oh, what happens to a patient subgroup if there's 10 times as many cells as average or 10 times fewer? Or maybe uh, the target protein is you know, really two times or 10 times higher than nominal. And there's actually variability around that. Can you really think about doses such that you can use a single dose? So in your, uh, in your mechanistic modeling, looking at simulated patient variability, what dose or dose frequency um, or whatever would you need so you have greater than X percent of your patients to have greater than Y percent response on the safety side, and maybe you know less than Z percent uh, on the safety uh, on the safe efficacy and safety side. So you really are thinking holistically, thinking about multiple different patients, and you have to start thinking about patient subgroups. So this variability and, uh, and uncertainty can really impact patient selection, uh, clinical trial design and how you think about that uh, dose escalation and or jumping across indications. Hey, so, John, you know, throughout these podcasts, we talked about how earlier in the pipeline, companies might opt for mechanistic approaches versus empirical ones. You know, is there a situation later in the pipeline where companies would choose another type of approach? Totally uh, and absolutely. Um, you know, NCA um, and PKPD approaches are still valid and important. Um, obviously, while you're doing mechanistic modeling, you should be doing uh, PKPD modeling. You know, in in that you know in that IND, right? It, it's important to think of this as well, um, and, and compare and contrast the two approaches. Absolutely, as you get uh, right before your BLA or um, or your or, or, or your uh, NDA. You typically, whether that's phase two or phase three, depending on the indication, certainly um, you would use a pop PK approach. Um, this is think of this as like PKPD modeling, but now you you do multiple parameter fits. So now you have distributions of parameters and enough patients that you can start to do statistics to say, you know, for these 
groups of patients where these parameters can be lumped together, when do you think statistically you'll, you know, you'll have safety and efficacy? And that's, that's very important. And you should still do that, in my opinion. It's, it's, it's just that for newer therapies like gene and cell therapies, I don't know if there's really standard approaches for POP-PK yet. Um, and, and we are working on it. Certainly there are some that have published some models, uh, but I do think that uh, mechanistic modeling is, 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 is the future. Um, and of course, POP-PK, POP-PKPD, you know, will continues to grow as a, as a discipline. Um, but, but, you know, that, that, that that's important. Uh, I do want to add, however, you know, while we're on this topic, uh, and I want to go, I want to wrap it around to the beginning where we started, you know, there's certain indications for ethical reasons you would love to start at a higher dose. Um, and by definition, Mabel, Noel, um, the standard techniques, sometimes you start at homeopathic doses, even in the end of line patients who really might need this help. Um, and this is where uh, the FDA, uh, the uh, Oncology Center of Excellence, uh, have, a, uh, have a new project called Project Optimus, and it's an initiative to reform the dose optimi optimization and dose selection uh, in oncology uh, development. And I and I really do think that this is an opportunity uh, as a discipline, uh, as, as an industry uh, across academics and, and pharma and biotech and, and government agencies to really systematically think and use systems modeling as, as well as other approaches to really help patients by justifying that higher, higher starting dose where, where it's appropriate, where it's, where it's still safe and hopefully efficacious. And, and that's important. And that's the whole, the whole backing uh, in PDUFA with uh, MIDD, Model Informed Drug Development, where, you know, as a society, we are really trying to help, you know, save time and money, but still deliver the world's best, uh, safest, and eff most efficacious drugs possible. So, you know, the, the, the federal government realizes that we have to use these approaches for ethical reasons. Um, and I do think that systems modeling is, is a component of that uh, for sure. Well, John, thank you so much. Uh, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. And it's really, this has been a really informative and enlightening podcast series. So we really, you know, thanks again for joining me not only on this episode, but on the previous uh, GenCast episodes. And as, as I mentioned in my opening uh, to the audience, you can check out the previous conversations I had with John uh, at, on the Gen website at genengenews.com slash podcast. So, John, thanks again, and uh, hopefully we'll see you at some more uh, GenCast in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to GenCast. For genetic engineering and biotechnology news, I'm Jeff Lewiskus.